Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. During the late 1970s, the residents of Wichita, Kansas were living on edge. A serial killer named BTK, short for Bind, Torture, Kill, had already murdered seven women and residents lived in constant fear about where he might strike again. Throughout the 1970s, BTK, who would eventually be arrested and unmasked as a former security alarm installer named Dennis Rader, sent taunting letters to the police, daring them to catch him. But it was on November 6th, 1978, when a couple named Ed and Ruth Finley appeared at police headquarters to report a different set of terrifying letters of their very own. Over the previous week, someone had been taunting Ruth with a series of disturbing phone calls and letters. The letters were always written in verse, which also gave the writer the name they're most known by, the poet. One such rhyme read, Here's to you, tender valentine, red with blood and tied with twine. Nothing too much for a valentine, gone from here by a whim of mine. Police filed the complaint and did a cursory investigation, but had little to go on. The Finleys were a quiet and unassuming couple with no enemies in the world. Ed Finley was a 50-year-old accountant who painted landscapes in his spare time. Ruth was 48. She worked in the security department of the phone company, and she liked to dabble in ceramics. The couple had raised two sons to adulthood. Both of them had moved away years before, leaving Ed and Ruth as empty nesters. Then on November 21st, Ed called the police to tell them Ruth had been abducted. She was later found downtown shaken but unharmed. She told the police two men she couldn't identify grabbed her and drove her around before she managed to jump out of the vehicle and escape. Later on, another letter arrived from the poet that read, The river is searched for the perished. Horrors will hate me, but by men I will be cherished. Viper's thoughts coil round my mind. Torture and agony are unkind. After that, officers put the couple under surveillance for their protection. While this was going on, several more letters appeared in their mailbox. Then in August 1979, Ruth was admitted to St. Joseph Medical Center with three stab wounds from an ice pick. One of the wounds punctured her kidney and nearly killed her. When she was finally able to speak to police, she told them a man attacked her in a mall parking lot, then ran off. Police still had no suspects. Ed's employer posted a $3,000 reward for information. Investigators sent copies of the letters to a noted psycholinguistics consultant who worked on the Son of Sam case asking for help. He identified the letter writer as severely psychotic, schizophrenic, wily, pathological, paranoid, and a loner with a deep feeling of persecution. 
From there, the harassment of the Finleys grew even more frantic. Their telephone lines were cut. A knife wrapped in newspaper was mailed to Ruth's office. The health department received a letter warning them that Ruth was spreading venereal diseases. A mortuary received a request on Ruth's behalf for information about its services. Someone left urine on their front porch and an unlit Molotov cocktail around back of the house. Their Christmas wreath was set on fire. Eggs and human feces were thrown at the house. Also some hair, firecrackers, and a piece of red bandana were all discovered outside the house. But despite Ruth giving a police sketch artist a description of the man who attacked her, police still had no leads. Officers set up surveillance cameras around the Finley's home but saw nothing. Some investigators began to speculate that BTK himself might be behind the letters from the poet. But the style of the writing, as well as the many other clues the poet left behind, were far too dissimilar from BTK's modus operandi. By late summer of 1981, the poet began sending letters to a dozen other people as well, including the wife of the Wichita police chief. Up to that point, police chief Richard Lemunyan had not been personally involved in the case. But when things grew personal, he took it upon himself to investigate. After he reviewed all the letters and evidence himself, Chief Lemunyan zeroed in on a suspect no one had considered before, Ruth Finley. The chief ordered his officers to begin undercover surveillance of Ruth. It wasn't long before they witnessed her dropping envelopes in a mailbox that turned out to contain letters written by the poet. They also found a fragment of red bandana at her workplace that matched the one left at her home by the mysterious letter writer. With new evidence in hand, police brought Ruth in for questioning. And although she at first denied being the poet, after a lengthy interrogation, she finally broke down in tears and admitted she thought she might be guilty as well. The investigation into the poet lasted three years and cost authorities more than $370,000 in 1982 dollars. That's the equivalent of more than a million dollars today. Kansas prosecutors agreed not to press any charges against Ruth if she underwent psychiatric treatment. Over time, psychiatrists were able to coax from Ruth a horrible truth. As a young child, she had been the victim of sexual abuse by a neighbor who kept her quiet by stuffing a red bandana in her mouth. Also, while she was a little girl, Ruth was given a book of poetry that she came to associate with the terrible abuse she had suffered. Psychiatrists came to believe Ruth repressed her memories of this abuse until one day it all came welling back up in adulthood in a schizophrenic episode, causing her to become her own stalker. Ruth spent six years in therapy. Afterwards, she was no longer compelled to hurt herself or send herself any more letters. Eventually, she was able to move on with her life. Both her job and her marriage survived the ordeal, and she went on to live a long and uneventful life after that. She died in June of 2019 of natural causes. But as bizarre as Ruth Finley's story was, it isn't the only one like it. In more recent years, another terrifying stalker began sending disturbing letters to a seemingly ordinary family. In 2014, Derek and Maria Broadus purchased their dream home in an upscale New Jersey neighborhood. What they didn't know at the time was the house also came with a disturbing problem. An unidentified letter writer who claimed to be spying on them all the time. 
Someone who seemed to know their every movement, who knew the names of their children, and who claimed to have hidden something horrible inside the walls of their house. Someone who signed their letters, The Watcher. I'm Nate Hale, reminding you the secret to real estate is location, location, location. That and not moving in next door to someone who wants to kill you. And this is The Conspirators. It was June 2014 when Derek Broadus received the first letter. He and his wife Maria had just closed on the home at 657 Boulevard three days earlier. They spent the next couple days doing some minor painting and other renovations in order to get the place ready for the family to move in. It was around 10 p.m. when Derek finished painting for the evening. He went out to get the mail and there he found among the stack of junk mail and bills a white envelope that was addressed in thick, awkward handwriting to the new owner. The note inside began with the warm greeting. Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. But after the warm greeting, the note became odd and more unsettling the more it went on. How did you end up here? The letter writer asked. Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its forces within? 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now. And as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. The letter went on to identify the Broadus' Honda minivan along with descriptions of the workers renovating the home. Whoever wrote the letter could obviously see them and knew what was going on. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Tisk tisk tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. A few days earlier, Derek and Maria Broadus had visited the neighborhood and introduced themselves to some of the new neighbors. They brought with them their three children, ages 5, 8, and 10 years old. The letter continued, You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. By now, Derek's hands were shaking as he finished the letter. The envelope contained no return address. Who am I? The unknown letter writer said. There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe... I am one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. Then the writer signed off with a signature typed in a cursive font, giving his name as only The Watcher. Derek's pulse was racing. 
He suddenly became acutely aware of how many windows there were that looked into his new house. He dashed from room to room, shutting off lights so that no one could see inside. Then he phoned the Westfield Police Department. The officer that arrived was just as dumbstruck by the letter as Derek had been. His only suggestion was to move a piece of construction equipment from the front porch, in case the mysterious letter writer decided to use it to vandalize the home. That night, Derek returned to his old home where his wife and kids were staying. He and his wife Maria sent an email to the previous owners, John and Andrea Woods, asking them if they knew anything about this mysterious watcher. The following morning, Andrea Woods replied and admitted that a few days before they moved out, they too had received a letter from someone calling himself the Watcher that she described as odd. That letter had made similar mention that the Watcher had been observing the home for some time. But Andrea and her husband swore they had never received anything like it during the 23 years they had lived in the house, so they tossed it out, thinking nothing much of it. That day, the Woodses went with the Broadduses to the police to file a report. They met with Detective Leonard Lugo, who instructed them not to tell anyone, not their friends or their new neighbors, about the letters. From that moment on, Lugo told them, anyone could be a suspect. Afterwards, the Broadduses remained on high alert whenever they visited their new home. Maria refused to let her children out of sight for too long. Derek canceled a work trip for the Manhattan insurance company he worked for. He came from a blue-collar background in Maine, but he managed to work his way up the corporate ladder to become a senior vice president. A job that paid well enough that the family was able to afford the $1.3 million colonial in the upper-middle-class neighborhood. One day, the general contractor they had hired arrived to find one of the heavy yard signs he'd hammered into the ground had been ripped out overnight. Then another time, Derek gave a tour of the renovations they had been doing to a neighboring couple. When the wife casually said, it'll be nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood, Derek went white as a sheet. It was two weeks later when the next letter arrived. This time it was Maria who found the card-shaped envelope with the crude handwriting stuffed in the mailbox. She immediately called the police. This letter addressed the couple directly, although it misspelled their last name as Braddis. Welcome to your new home at 657 Boulevard, the letter began. The workers have been busy, and I have been watching you unload cartfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time, they will. The watcher then wrote that he'd been keeping a careful eye on the new family, and had learned a lot about them since they last corresponded. He identified each of the Broadus's three children by name and birth order, including their nicknames. Maria realized she had shouted these nicknames loudly whenever one of the kids got out of sight. I am pleased to know your names now, and the name of the young blood you have brought me, the watcher wrote. You certainly say their names often. The watcher even asked about one of the children in particular, who had been using an easel inside the enclosed porch. Is she the artist in the family? The watcher wrote. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in, the letter said. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement, or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. 
Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the Watcher, and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on, and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Bradis family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. After that, the Broadduses refused to bring their children to the house anymore. They were beginning to think that maybe they didn't even want to live there anymore. Several weeks later, another letter arrived. This time the watcher asked where they had gone to. 657 Boulevard is missing you. It said, Westfield is an upscale neighborhood that lies about 45 minutes from New York. Most of the town's 30,000 residents are well-to-do. Recently, Bloomberg rated Westfield the 99th richest city in America, but only the 18th richest in New Jersey. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. In 2014, the website NeighborhoodScout.com named it number 30 on the rankings of the safest towns in America. Because the neighborhood is considered so desirable, one of the early theories about the identity of the Watcher was that he may have been a disgruntled homebuyer who lost out on the bidding war for 657 Boulevard. The Watcher himself even admitted in one of his letters that 657 Boulevard used to be the most highly prized street to live on. If you lived on Boulevard, then you knew you'd made it. Back in 1905, 657 Boulevard was the nicest house on the block. But although the Woods has received numerous bids for the property, police looked into this possibility and couldn't find any other bidders on the house who appeared to hold such a grudge. It was Andrea Woods who suggested the watcher might be a lot closer to home based on their knowledge of the property and who was coming and going. Evidence did seem to suggest the watcher might live nearby. The postmarks on the letter showed they had been processed in Kearney, the nearest U.S. Postal Distribution Center. The first letter had been processed on June 4th, and that was before the sale had been made public. There had never even been a for sale sign in the front yard. That date was also only one day after the contractors arrived. 
and even then the majority of the renovations were done on the interior, which meant it was unlikely most people would have even realized anything was being done to the house. Detective Lugo realized that the easel on the porch was hidden by the landscaping, suggesting that whoever had seen the little girl out there drawing would have had to have either been standing behind the house or right next door. A few days after they received the first letter, Derek and Maria were invited to a housewarming party across the street. Per the police's instructions, they kept quiet about the watcher's letter, although they kept a close eye on their new neighbors to see if anyone acted suspiciously around them. At one point, one of the neighbors told them about the Langfords, the family who lived between them. The neighbor described the Langford family as eccentric but harmless. Peggy Langford was in her 90s and several of her adult children, all of them in their 60s, lived with her. The neighbor who shared the gossip about the Langfords to Derek Broaddus described one of the sons, Michael Langford, as a real Boo Radley character, a bearded oddball who had been out of work for a long time. Derek thought for certain this must be the answer. The Langford's house had a clear view of the easel on the porch. The family had lived next door since the 1960s, around when the watcher claimed his father had begun watching the house at 657 Boulevard. He claimed he had picked up the mantle of the watcher from his father after he passed away. It should be noted that Michael Langford's father, Richard Langford, died 12 years earlier. Detective Lugo brought Michael Langford into police headquarters for questioning. Michael denied having any knowledge of the letters, although Detective Lugo did inform Derek that Michael had made a few incriminating statements that appeared to match some of the things that were said in the letters. But despite these statements, there remained no hard evidence the Langfords were in any way involved. This left the police's hands tied and Derek brought us feeling frustrated. He set up surveillance webcams around 657 Boulevard and began spending his nights watching for the watcher. He began his own investigation and soon drew up a map of all his neighbors, indicating when each of them had moved into the neighborhood. Only the Langfords had been there since the 1960s. He then marked up the map indicating the few homes that might have a direct line of sight toward the easel on the back porch. He also circled an area that seemed to be reasonably within earshot for someone to have overheard Maria shouting the children's names. In both instances, the Langfords' home fit the bill. The Broadduses then hired a number of professional investigators to look into the matter. This included a private investigator who staked out the neighborhood and ran a background check on the Langfords, only he didn't find anything important. They reached out to a couple of former FBI agents for help as well. One of them was an expert in threat assessment. He studied the letters and suggested the writer was likely an older person, based on his poetic flourishes and the old-fashioned formality he used in composing his salutations. He also speculated that the writer may have seen and drew inspiration from a Keanu Reeves film named The Watcher, in which Reeves plays a serial killer who stalks the detective out to catch him. Although the former FBI agent thought the Watcher suffered from a seething anger toward wealthy members of society, based on some of his writings, he also didn't think the writer would ever follow through on his threats. One of the Watcher's letters seemed particularly angry at the renovations the Broadduses were doing to the property. The house is crying from all the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. 
The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard, when I ran from room to room imagining the life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old, and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Although the police continued to look for other suspects, the Langfords always remained on their radar. Detective Lugo interviewed Michael Langford a second time, but this went nowhere. The Broadduses sent the Langfords a letter expressing their desire to tear the house down, hoping to elicit a response, but none followed. Abby Langford, Michael's sister, accused the police of harassment. The Broadduses even hired a lawyer named Lee Levitt, who went to the Langfords' home and showed them photographs that revealed their home was one of the few places that had a vantage point from which the easel could be seen. But the Langfords remained steadfast in their denial. Although the Langfords remained strong suspects in the Broadduses' minds, a few other promising leads did turn up. The private investigator the family hired found two registered child sex offenders living within a few blocks of 657 Boulevard. Then one day the Broadduses' house painter noticed something else odd. The couple who lived directly behind 657 Boulevard kept a pair of lawn chairs parked unusually close to the Broadduses' property. That was when he noticed there was an older man sitting in one of those chairs. Only instead of sitting facing his own house, he was staring directly at the Broadduses. By the end of 2014, most of the leads had begun to dry up. The watcher had left no fingerprints nor any other clues that could point to his identity. By December, the renovations to the house were finally finished, but the Broadduses couldn't bring themselves to move in. How could they trust letting their kids play outside? or ever trust letting any of their neighbors inside. They installed a new alarm system on the house. They thought about getting a trained attack dog or perhaps even armed security. But when all was said and done, the Broadduses realized none of it was worth the risk. Until the watcher was identified and arrested, they would never feel truly safe in their new home. Meanwhile, the watcher's letters kept coming, and even more worryingly, they began to sound increasingly frantic. One of them read, 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass, and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it, and let it alone. Something else disturbing about the letters was that some of them actually described features inside the house, which meant whoever the Watcher was... He had to have been inside at some point. By then, the Broadduses had sold their old home and were forced to move in with Maria's parents while they continued to pay the mortgage and property taxes on their new home they refused to live in. The constant worries about the Watcher's threats began to take a toll on Maria and Derek. Maria began having vivid nightmares about a man with a pitchfork stalking her children. Every day she went out in public around town, she found herself becoming increasingly paranoid 
She began studying the faces of the people passing her by for some indication they meant her and her children harm. Derek and Maria began arguing constantly. They were each prescribed medication to help them sleep. Maria began seeing a therapist who diagnosed her as suffering post-traumatic stress. Derek and Maria finally decided to put the house up for sale six months after receiving the first letter. At first, they put the house up for sale at a higher asking price than they had paid for it. They informed their real estate agent about the letters and ensured them they would reveal the content of the letters to whoever got the winning bid. But the rumors continued to swirl about the watcher of 657 Boulevard, and most of the offers that came in were far below the asking price. Although the Woodses insisted the only letter they received from the watcher was in no way threatening, merely strange, Derek and Maria still filed a legal complaint against them for not disclosing they had received the letter. Once the legal complaint went public, word leaked out to the media, and not long after, reporters began camping out around the neighborhood hoping to get the scoop on the watcher. Hundreds of requests for interviews poured into the Broadduses. A reporter on NBC's Today Show went on the air and described it as one of the top ten creepiest stories he'd ever heard. The internet community had a field day with the Watcher story. One commenter on NJ.com suggested the couple used ground-penetrating radar to scour the walls to find whatever was hidden inside. A home inspector checked the house and assured the couple he hadn't found anything. One user on Reddit scrutinized a blurry image from Google Maps Street View and thought he noticed a person sitting in a car holding a camera. Everyone had a different theory. It was a Scooby-Doo plot with a jealous realtor trying to drive down the house price so he could buy it himself and resell it for a profit. It was viral marketing for a horror movie. It was a jilted mistress. It was terrorists. It was just a bunch of screwball teenagers from the neighborhood posing an elaborate prank. Once the story broke and became public, many members of the community began to turn against the Broadduses. One conspiracy theory sprung up that Derek Broaddus had sent the letters to himself in order to cancel the home sale when he found himself swimming in debt. But that really makes no sense when you consider how much money and renovations they poured into the home. Not to mention the amount of stress and anxiety the entire family suffered in the ensuing months following the letters. Baron Chambliss, a retired former detective with the Westfield Police Department, investigated the case and told reporters some interesting details he learned about the Langfords. He claimed that Michael Langford had been diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was a young man, and he had developed a reputation for spooking the neighbors by doing things like trespassing in other people's backyards and peeping in windows. But a few of the people who lived in the neighborhood viewed Michael Langford differently, claiming sure he was odd, but he only did things like that as a courtesy to make sure there were no prowlers around and that everyone in the neighborhood remained safe. Chambliss also revealed something else surprising. He said that investigators had run a DNA analysis on one of the envelopes and the results determined the DNA belonged to a woman. This led Chambliss to consider a different Langford, Abby, Michael's sister. Abby Langford worked part-time as a real estate agent. Chambliss wondered if Abby might feel resentful for missing out on the commission for the million-dollar home right next door. He managed to snag her DNA off a discarded water bottle, but the results were not a match to the DNA found on the envelope. Soon after, the prosecutor's office publicly announced the Langfords were no longer considered viable suspects. The announcement by the authorities left the Broadduses feeling blindsided and adrift. They were so positive the Langfords were the source of the letters 
They'd even been preparing to file civil charges against them. Now with their most promising suspects off the list and with the police's investigation stalling, the Broadus has tried to push forward with their own investigation. They hired handwriting and linguistics experts to study the letters, although none of the leads they provided led anywhere. They briefly considered hiring a self-professed computer hacker to try breaking into the neighborhood Wi-Fi networks, but soon realized this was both illegal and nowhere near as easy as it seemed in the movies. Meanwhile, gossip continued to swirl around Westfield, and some members of the community began to speculate that the Broadduses were behind the letters after all. Perhaps in some sort of insurance scam, or as a way to angle for a movie deal. The Lifetime Network did release a heavily fictionalized movie called The Watcher, despite receiving a cease and desist letter from the Broadduses' attorney. In 2018, Netflix won out in a bidding war for the rights to make their own movie about The Watcher. The Broadduses were becoming ostracized in their own community, despite never actually moving in. In 2016, they put the house back on the market, but as soon as they allowed any interested buyers to read the letters, each of the buyers quickly backed out of the deal. At one point, the Broadduses' real estate attorney suggested they sell the land to a developer who would tear down the house and split it into two smaller lots. But doing so would cause the two lots to be 67.4 and 67.6 feet wide, just under the local zoning regulation of 70 feet wide for a lot. They filed an application for the city to allow an exception. This had been done several times before. But in this particular instance, the usually boring town planning meeting turned into mass chaos when more than a hundred angry residents showed up, many of them with their own lawyers loudly arguing against the proposal. The committee unanimously rejected the Broadduses' request. The Broadduses did eventually manage to rent the house out, but just two weeks after the renter moved in, another letter showed up in the mailbox. This time, the letter angrily referred to the owners as the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. The Watcher followed this with a vicious rant against the Broadduses, the media, and the entire town of Westfield, all of whom he described as idiots who were too stupid to ever figure out his true identity. Over the following months, a few more letters from the Watcher continued to trickle into 657 Boulevard, although they became more infrequent over time. One other curious thing that happened was that around Christmas a couple years ago, a number of different angry letters began appearing in mailboxes throughout the neighborhood. One neighbor claimed to have received a letter from the real Watcher, but then another group of letters were hand-delivered to the mailboxes of a number of the most vocal residents who had criticized the Broadduses. This included one particular member of the community who had written on Facebook how they wished they could bring back the good old days of tarring and feathering people. The hand-delivered letters were written in similar poetic language to those attributed to the Watcher. But, in contrast, these letters directly accused each of the recipients of publicly shaming and spreading false information about the Broadus family. These letters were signed, The Friends of the Broadus Family. When a reporter for New York Magazine interviewed Derek Broaddus and asked him if he knew anything about these letters, Derek reluctantly admitted he had written them. He said he wasn't proud of what he had done and that they were the only anonymous letters he'd ever written. He explained that the strain of the Watcher letters combined with so much of the Westfield community turning against him and his family finally caused him to snap and retaliate in the only way he knew how, by writing some letters of his own. Now... If this were a Hollywood movie, it would come with a tight little Hollywood ending. At the time of this recording, the Netflix film is still in the work, so perhaps some screenwriter will come up with a more action-packed finish. 
but reality is seldom ever as neat and tidy as the movies. The Broadduses still don't know who the Watcher is, and by now they've tried to move on with their lives as best they can. In 2019, Derek and Maria finally managed to sell their house at 657 Boulevard at a loss of $400,000 below the $1.3 million they'd paid for it. For the Broaddus family, at least, their long nightmare is over, and the Watcher is someone else's problem. The new homeowners have refused to speak to the media, and to date, no one knows if the Watcher continues to write to them. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to remind my listeners that I have a Patreon account set up where you can get early access to the latest episodes, as well as access to a growing library of bonus mini-episodes. Patrons of the show can also get lots of other swag, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and a good old-fashioned shout-out on the show. Another way you can help support The Conspirators is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find our show on many of the places you get your podcasts, but by spreading the good word about us and Apple, you can boost our show in the rankings and help grow the audience even more. Besides that, I invite you to follow us along on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, which is another place you can find our entire back catalog of shows. You can also feel free to send me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let me know how I'm doing. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll be back next time.